I want to thank all of you who prayed for Mary Ellen and me while we were away, and I know that we are among many uh, traveling this time of year, and one thing we love about these next few weeks uh, is seeing everybody get back, and uh, it's, it's good to be back, and I know some of you have been traveling and are back. Um, we were grateful to spend time with the Bixby's in Monterey and the Nunez's in Cancun, and um, just to see God's continued work there is a huge blessing to actually put eyes on uh, what is going on, um, what God is doing, uh, what the needs are, and um, I'm grateful that our church family thinks that's important uh, for us to be able to do that. I also want to say thanks um, to the men who did the preaching and teaching while I was away. Um, I've gotten to listen to three out of four of them, and you were well served, so thank you to Joel and Ted and Andrew and Jake um, for uh, opening the Word uh, to the congregation. Well, today we start a new series, um, Faith Under Fire, Thriving in a Hostile World, uh, from the books of First and Second Thessalonians. These are letters, we call them books, epistles, though, are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to believers in Thessalonica. That's in northern Greece. Um, in that time, it was known as Macedonia. If we can throw this map up, we'll get a, a sense. Um, I wanted to get a sense of kind of where this is all placed. You remember that, that Paul got the vision in the night uh, while he was at Troas, saying, come over to help us, uh, the man of Macedonia. Um, of course, the first person he met who came to the Lord was a woman of Macedonia, uh, Lydia. So he goes from east to west to, to Philippi, and then from Philippi goes on uh, to Thessalonica. And you can see Berea then further to the west, and then he drops down to Athens and then cuts over to Corinth. So kind of that's where these journeys are, are going. Well, uh, Thessalonica is 95 miles from Philippi along what was known as the Ignatian uh, Way, about a 700-mile Roman road. Um, and when we say road, they use these large stones, um, octagonal stones, almost 20 feet wide, like it's a highway uh, with sand on top of that. And those roads still exist today. For a matter of time, we're not showing you pictures of them, but you can Google it yourself. That's all I would have done. Um, um, maybe some of you have actually been there. I don't know if, Uncle Fred, you've actually been there. So you can, you can ask Uncle Fred if he has it in his photo album. Um, but that, that road, if we have that next slide, the road um, runs all the way from current-day Istanbul, Byzantium, uh, Turkey, all the way across northern Greece, Macedonia, and then on into um, Albania to the coast of the Adriatic Sea. If you sailed west from that point in Albania um, across the Adriatic and picked up the Appian Way, you could actually travel all the way to Rome, um, the capital of the empire. So, this Ignatian Way conducted with the Appian Way would, Appian way would actually uh, send you a highway uh, east to west or west to east, whichever way you're traveling, uh, from uh, Istanbul to Rome. Well, Thessalonica was a thriving city in Paul's day of some 200,000 people. It actually still exists today 
with a population of over a million. And if the next slide will show you uh, the actual, the current spelling of it um, with the I-K-I at the end, and you can also, this slide just comes off of my, my phone. So you get on your maps and you, you ask how many miles it is between here and uh, Thessaloniki or Thessaloniki, I don't know how they say it. Um, anyway, it's there today. And you can see that uh, it's a significant city. In Paul's day, it was capital of the province of Macedonia, a strategic economic center uh, with what one man called a splendid harbor on the Gulf of Salonika near two rivers surrounded by fertile plains. Uh, the city was named after the stepsister of Alexander the Great. And the city, in the days of the Roman Civil War between Mark Antony and Octavian, who later became Augustus Caesar, remember they were fighting against Cassius and Brutus, who had been among the conspirators who assassinated Julius Caesar. Well, Thessalonica sided with the winning side. And so it gained free city status in 42 BC. Now, what that meant was there was no Roman garrison stationed there. The city enjoyed local autonomy. It had a senate, had a public assembly. Uh, there was a council of five to seven magistrates called polytarchs who governed Thessalonica. And for years, those who reject the accuracy of the biblical account charged Luke with an error in calling the magistrates in our text uh, polytarchs. But it so happens that over time, archaeologists found multiple inscriptions in the Macedonian region, unlike other regions that actually refer, uh, use this term to refer to the leaders there, polytarchs. The point of all this is this. Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians to real people living in a real historical situation. And to understand the letters well, we need to understand what prompted Paul to write them. So our series on First and Second Thessalonians will actually start in Acts. In Acts 17, a two-message prequel, if you will, Dr. Luke, traveling companion to the great apostles of the Gentiles, records the history of his missionary journeys. And, and in that history, Luke records the birth of the church at Thessalonica. And we're going there today in Acts 17, 1 through 9. Follow with me as I read. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, the politarchs, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down, have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The enemies of Christianity considered it a dangerous faith. 
disrupting the status quo. The missionaries were accused of turning the world upside down, even though in reality they were turning it right side up. The new believers in Christ would find that their newfound faith put them in the path of danger. The enemies of the gospel would use whatever means they could to stop it, including mob violence. And we see that illustrated right in this introduction to the founding of the church. This Christianity that Paul preached was a dangerous faith, and hence the title of the message this morning, Dangerous Faith. We're going to look in verses 1 through 3 at the proven strategy that the apostles used. And I say proven because this is what they did uh, wherever they went. Number four, I mean, in verse 4, we see their initial success, and then verses 5 through 9, uh, quite a lot of information on the common backlash. Authentic Christianity continues to face hostility, really of the same sort that we see here. We need to learn how to navigate the dangers of our day with faithfulness, wisdom, and courage. The founding of the church in Thessalonica and the letters Paul wrote to them will give us insight on just how to do that. Faith Under Fire is the name of our series, Thriving in a Hostile World, and this is what we want to see happen in our own lives. First, consider with me this morning the proven strategy that the apostles used when they came into this important city. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Amphipolis was 30 miles west of Philippi. You remember what had happened at Philippi? They would have still had the wounds from being beaten there and thrown into into jail. So, 30 miles west of Philippi, another 27 miles they would come to Apollonia. This is all along that Ignatian Way. These were large cities along that that, uh, great route, but they passed them up for some reason. We don't know for sure. It's possible that there was no synagogue there, but they arrive at Thessalonica, which is another 38 miles and there, there is a synagogue. And what is a synagogue? When you look at the word itself, uh, you can see the similarity between this word and congregation, and that's really what it means. It's a gathering together for the teaching of the Scriptures and for worship. It was Paul's custom to do this. And strikingly, this is the way Jesus is described, and it talks about His going into the synagogue. You know, God's people belong where the congregation gathers for teaching of the Word and worship. And God's people, Old and New Testaments, did not forsake assembling themselves together for the worship and for the teaching of the Word. And Paul's mission strategy was to go to the Jew first and specifically to the synagogue. Why would he do that? It wasn't just because of the the nationality of these people. It was also because there he would find an audience that was already aware of the true God, the biblical teaching of the true God, and already aware, at least to some degree, even if they're confused a bit about it, of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. It reminds us, even our day, that the fertile ground of gospel endeavor is not just in the streets. It's among those who are drawn to the Word and worship. Don't just assume that everybody here is, is a believer. They're not. 
There are plenty of people who aren't born again yet. There are plenty of those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. You may be sitting beside them. You have opportunity every time we gather for worship to actually engage with people enough to find out where they are and actually show them Jesus. There's not a Lord's Day that goes by, but that we don't have those who haven't trusted Jesus yet. And we want to engage them. We want to persuade them. You find this um, tactic used in planting churches elsewhere. Uh, when we were in Monterey, um, their, their tactic there of planting the churches, they would start with children's Bible clubs, uh, teaching children. That would get them connected to the parents. They would start evangelizing those parents, and eventually they would have uh, Bible studies um, with those adults. And then those Bible studies would grow into a mission church, and then that mission church would eventually become an independent uh, church. And so, uh, whether it's children's Bible sc- uh, clubs or workplace Bible studies, these are all fruitful ways of planting a gospel seed and seeing people come to Christ and then those people forming a new church. Where the apostles were careful, we see from our text, to prove their testimony. Remember, they were sent by Christ, they're eyewitnesses of who He is and what He did, but they, they were careful to prove their testimony by means of the written Word of God. If you look at the 19 examples of their preaching in the book of Acts, it shows that they relied on this strategy. And, and in their epistles, their letters, they stress why. It's, that, it's this, the Spirit of God is the one who changes the human heart by means of the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the Word of God. There's no substitute, not even an apostolic testimony. So, they would prove their case from the Scriptures. No matter how much you might respect a person and his intellect and his wisdom and his history, uh, if all you have to bank on is his personality and what he's seen, it's not enough to bank your soul on it. We want to see the objective written Word of God. And so he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And the word reasoned is a word we get dialogue from, and it's the idea of, of revolving the mind of teaching with a method of question and answer. It's interactive. Um, it, it emphasizes uh, stimulating thought, but, but it's this interactive kind of teaching. Our proclamation of the good news has to engage the minds of our hearers, not just their emotions. Now, we want, we want the emotions. The emotions should kick in, but if we bypass the mind to get the emotions, it's just propaganda. It doesn't ground people. They, they need to know the truth of the gospel, and they need to come to some level of understanding, then that generates the proper kinds of emotions. Just repeating slogans is not preaching. Preaching means explaining and applying God's words. This is the apostolic method. This is the proven strategy. Paul's work among the Thessalonians clearly was not just preaching like I'm doing now, a monologue. It was also interaction. And so, so as we look at their method, we realize that we have to learn to, to listen as well as talk when we're evangelizing. Why is that? Well, you've got to know your audience. You need to hear their questions, not just imagine what the questions are. You need to understand where they're coming from so that you know who you're talking to. We, We shouldn't just 
you know, sometimes our evangelism is like giving them a speech, giving them a tract, and running, okay? Kind of lobbing the gospel over the wall. And, and it needs to be more engaging than that, where we actually create situations to ask probing questions. Uh, Jesus did this all the time. Uh, he, he was a master at asking questions that just cut right down to the core of things. And, and also, we need opportunity to give solid answers. This is part of what makes it ho- so hard today. It's, it's, it's difficult to have that kind of opportunity and time to actually have a conversation. Um, there, so much public discourse today has devolved into shouting down the opposition and repeating mantras to those who already agree with you. It's not convincing. It's not convincing if you're talking about science or politics or history or the arts. So why would we use such a shallow, off-putting strategy for spreading the most important news of all? We've got to be able to engage in people. We need to recover the art of thoughtful conversation. Sound bites may work for advertising, but they don't work for evangelizing. Truth deserves better, and people deserve better. And so we, we need to have a, a good understanding of what it takes, actually, to evangelize and, and not do these short, little, quickie, insta-evangelizing, and, but actually engage the way that, that works. And so we're all going to have to work at this. It means taking time to be with people where they are. In, in First Thessalonians, Paul uh, will write about how patient and compassionate and, and caring he and his fellow missionaries were with the Thessalonians. They were like a nurse. They were like a, a, a parent uh, taking care of a sick child. Um, we live in a time where, where other kinds of responses to our culture are more common. Fretfulness and fear and anger and protests and dismissiveness and pride. Well, these kinds of things repel people. The gospel is compelling. It's attractive. It meets us where we are. It, it answers to universal human need, whether you're living in the first century or the 21st century. So we don't need to fear the engagement. The gospel can take the heat if we're willing to go where the heat is. Truth resonates with the human heart, even if a person declares that there is no such thing, which would mean that's the only truth there is, that there's, you get it, right? If there is no truth, then there's at least one truth. There is no truth. It's, it's contradictory. It's absurd. And, and we all know that love and respect are attractive. So this kind of evangelism is what the apostles were doing. If we're going to turn the word, world right side up, we have to engage people. We have to listen to their questions we, we need to have solid biblical explanations, not little pat answers that can't bear scrutiny. And, and it's for certain that no little religious talk that affirms everybody, but fails to lay out clearly what the Scriptures actually say, can do the job. The whole notion that Christianity is an unthinking religion is completely foreign to the Bible's portrayal of it. If you have to check your brains at the door to receive the gospel, it's not the gospel. We want people to stop. We want people to think. We want them to understand. We want the evidence to convince them because there's lots of evidence. And we want our interaction with them to be compelling. 
So Paul was there in the synagogue for teaching for three Sabbaths. Now, I used to think that he was in Thessalonica only three weeks, but then we learned from the, from the letter to the Philippians that he actually uh, was there long enough to re- receive uh, funds from that church of supply um, a, a couple times, at least twice, in addition to his tent-making uh, efforts. So evidently, after he taught for three Sabbaths in the synagogues, he spent time additional time evangelizing and discipling primarily a Gentile population. So, as Paul taught the Scriptures, as he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, what was his focus? Look at verse 3 of Acts 17, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this is Jesus, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, is the Messiah. The words explaining and proving talk about opening the minds by opening the Scriptures, and uh, just as Christ did when He was on the road to Emmaus with the followers there, He's explaining. This is is what we want to do with the Scripture. We want to open them up. We want to explain the Scriptures, and He was also proving, And and the word that's used is literally the idea of laying things out side by side. So it's like you got this big table and you're laying out the evidence so that people can compare. Um, comparing what the Scriptures say, comparing that to what the apostles have witnessed of Jesus and seeing that they match. Jesus Himself declared that the Scriptures testify of Him and that, that searching of the Scriptures should lead you to Him and to the life that He offers. And yet, sadly, over the centuries and even to this day, it can be difficult to find Christ in the preaching of even Bible-believing teachers and preachers. Perhaps you sat through whole messages, and they didn't even mention Jesus, like, you know, a how-to message is actually going to save your soul. Um, People need to be brought to Jesus. Um, Too often, those that teach are hung up on their systems and their pet doctrines. They're lost in the weeds and the side paths. Well, that kind of teaching will never turn the world right side up. We have to get the emphasis of our preaching to the world right. We preach not ourselves. We, we don't actually need another Hampton Park anywhere else in the world. Okay, there are things that are our own idiosyncrasies, our way we do things that worked out here, but we don't have to export all of that. What we want to export, what we want to focus on is Jesus. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Christ's sake. We, we are serving people by leading them, pointing them to Jesus. When we point others to Christ through the Scripture, then what should we be emphasizing? What were the apostles looking at things, uh, looking at when they looked at the Scriptures? Well, you'll notice the text says that, that, that he was proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, this was a stumbling block for the Jews. It was foolishness to the Greeks, um, as it would be to the Romans as well, who despised weakness. But but the Jews were looking for a conquering Messiah to bring back national freedom and prosperity. And they had difficulty reconciling the passages that talked about the Messiah suffering and the Messiah ruling. They even had a two-Messiah theory to to resolve it. But, But the the expectation of Messiah for many people, for many Jews, had, had become akin to the health and wealth 
distortion of the gospel today. It's all about what Jesus is going to do for you. It's a mistake to talk about God's having a wonderful plan for your life instead of addressing the universal human need for perfect righteousness to replace our wrath-deserving sin against God's moral law. We, we, we need a Messiah who's a Savior. Um, the Messiah is a conquering king, but the Old Testament's clear. He must suffer and die to fulfill the Scriptures and to accomplish God's appointed plan of redemption and rescue. Well, how is he ever going to reign? Well, then he has to rise from the dead, too. And the whole sacrificial system pointed to this. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant, wounded, bruised, unjustly executed for the sins of many. Daniel 9 says Messiah the prince would be cut off. Um, All of this is necessary um, for Jesus to fulfill the picture of Messiah. And if he's going to die and yet reign forever, then he has to rise from the dead. This is God's plan. Psalm 16, sin says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The apostles love going to that text. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 lays this out really clearly. As we read these verses, notice the combination of both suffering and victory, of both death and resurrection that that flows through these verses. Sometimes when um, those who've never been exposed to Isaiah 53, you start reading from it, they think you're reading from the New Testament because it's so clearly a picture of Jesus. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's what victors do. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Those verses themselves demonstrate that it's necessary for the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, the great servant of the Lord, both to die, to suffer, and to rise again. So the scriptural portrait of the Messiah's person and, and mission, relation to, the sin, to sin, the law, and justification, and resurrection, exaltation, that has to be our central message if we're to turn the world right side up. The apostles demonstrated that Jesus matches that messianic portrait Exactly. He's the fulfillment of it. And the reality is there's no one else in all of history that can. When you look at all the prophecies, he's the only one that matches. All efforts then to divorce the Jesus of history. You know, a lot of people talk about Jesus and loving Jesus and trusting Jesus, but they're talking about a different Jesus. They're not talking about the Jesus that was prophesied or the Jesus of history. And, and when we divorce the Jesus of history from the Scripture's portrait of him, all that is completely at odds with the eyewitness testimony. It's completely at odds with the testimony of Jesus and the apostles. It really doesn't amount, it's not good news, it's fake news. They're masquerading as scholarship. They ignore the primary sources. They gut Christianity of its meaning, its power to change the human heart. True Christianity is not just a philosophy, it's real history. As is a salvation that's yet to come, and it's powerful to save to the uttermost all who believe. So, 
what do we do with all of this? As we look at the apostles' method, well, I believe that much of the failure of modern evangelism seems to be rooted in its departure from apostolic methods. We do marketing, we do all kinds of systems, uh, all kinds of shortcuts. But if we would just go back to the way the apostles did it, I believe it would be far more effective. Historically, when Christians get back to the scriptural basis practiced by Christ and the apostles, awakening and revival follow. Why is that? Because it's God who sends it. So, why not let God's Word, unleash God's Word, use the methods that are displayed for us, and then and God's the one that brings awakening and revival. We're not going to manufacture it with man-made tools. We want to use the tools that God has given to us, and we pray for that kind of awakening and revival in our own day. Now, the effects of awakening and revival can be spectacular, but the means of getting there are not. Why is that? Well, it's, it's, we're not making, we are not making it happen. God is making it happen. Day in and day out, faithful interaction with people who need Jesus. Dialogue, explaining, proving, focusing on Jesus as the promised Messiah, the only Savior King. And whether you're a preacher or not, this, this is what our lives are about. What do, what do we say? We, we are here as a church family to display and to proclaim the good news that God's calling out of people for His name through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. That, you know, so our lives are, ought to be a, like a walking billboard for this gospel. And, you know, think about it. If, if you're going to display the gospel, somebody's got to be watching You've, you've got to be within the eyesight of somebody who can actually inspect your lives. I was reminded once again uh, in our visit with the Nunezes this time of how the churches there have grown. They, they grow like this. Somebody gets saved. Somebody trusts in Jesus. The family says, oh, well, he's got religion. How long will this last? It'll be like all the other stuff. Well, after about six months, they see that this person has actually changed right down to the core of who he or she is. And, and family members get interested. What was it that changed them this way? And they start um, paying attention to the gospel message. They might even start attending the church with the individual. And eventually, most of the family gets saved. They display and proclaim the gospel. They proclaim and display the gospel. This is the method. It's not spectacular. God is spectacular. Christ is spectacular. The awakening is, can be spectacular, but the means to it are, it's like planting a field and watering it. And then the harvest comes because why? God gives the growth. So we don't, we don't need another fancy way of doing stuff. We just need to stick to the apostolic method and, and watch God do what God does through His Gospel. So this is, this is the proven strategy. Now look at the initial success in verse 4. And, that, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. They were persuaded. They, the evidence presented was convincing. The answers to their questions were satisfying. Jews and Greeks, 
men and women, the gospel's for everyone. This was the response. It was a broad response, and they joined Paul and Silas. Literally, they were allotted to Paul and Silas. There's an unseen force at work. It's God himself. He used Paul and, and Silas as his messengers, but he was the one who brought them to repentance and faith. He's the one that convinced those that believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah foretold by the Old Testament. Never forget that when you share the gospel, you are not alone. God is at work. If, if God weren't at work, if this were not the power of God unto salvation, it would kind of be pointless to engage in it. It's just more talk, and we certainly have enough talk in our day. But God has promised to use His Word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Whoever proclaims the Word is a middleman, a messenger, sent out by the Lord of harvest. And Christ has called His disciples, those who follow Him, to proclaim the gospel to all creation, making disciples of all ethnicities. We do so as ambassadors of Jesus, to whom God has given all authority on heaven and earth. That means there's no place you can set your face, put your foot in all the earth where Christ is not the rightful ruler. And he has promised to be with us all the days, even to the consummation of the age. And besides these Jews, there are a handful of them, there are also a great many devout Greeks who believe. That means they were worshiping Greeks, God-fearers, like, like Cornelius, the Roman centurion who was converted in Caesarea. And not a few of the leading women. These are possibly wives of city officials. More likely, they are women who themselves were high-standing leaders in the community. Um, women like Lydia, who is a successful businesswoman of Philippi. Because women in the, the, the Greek-Roman world at this time could achieve this kind of high status. And, and they were convinced. Later, we learn the names of some of the Thessalonian converts. Perhaps the one we see uh, show up the most, well, the one we do see show up the most is a man named Aristarchus. He traveled with Paul. He was with him in Ephesus when that riot broke out there. Uh, he returned with him later to Philippi and Thessalonica. He was with him on the voyage to Rome. Uh, he was a fellow prisoner with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment under house arrest. And when, when Paul writes Philemon, he lists him as one of his fellow workers. Gaius was another one that was with Paul in Ephesus, and Gaius was from Thessalonica. And then there's a man named Secundus, um, traveled with Paul. Guest, uh, he, there's evidently one who was the number one son, and he's Secundus, right? He, he's second, uh, second born. And then it's possible that Demas is from Thessalonica. He's famous for his defection in love with this present world, he left Paul in his final, Paul's final imprisonment and headed to Thessalonica. Now, I don't know that this is his hometown, but, you know, maybe it is because that's where he headed. Well, those who believed, we're told, were joined to Paul and Silas. Common cause, a common life in Jesus. Part of the new community called the church, the called-out assembly of the family of God. A professing Christian who doesn't want to keep company with other believers raises the question whether he has actually been born again, whether he's actually part of the family. The fact is we need one another, just like the parts of your body need the other parts of the body. We need to work together. We don't survive well dismembered. 
Okay? Our body doesn't, and, and neither do we. And there's not a one of us, no matter what our role is in the body, that, that does well when we isolate ourselves. Um, one of the hard things about summers can be the vacation time where, and, and where it's sometimes it's harder to keep connection with the body, and um, we need one another. Jesus joins us to our forever family, and we want to build and to nurture uh, relationships with one another. It's possible to actually be in a room like this and still be very much isolated. It's possible to be a member of a church and still be very much isolated. We, we want to be joined. We, we want to, through those, those joining places, be pouring what God is doing in our life into the life of other people. What God is doing in their life, we want to flow to us. We need one another. Well, finally, let's look at the common backlash in verses 5 through 9. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. That's our word, polytarchs. And shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The Jews referred to here are not all the Jews. They're, they're the Jews that didn't believe. They resented that the good news of the Messiah the Jewish Messiah would be offered to Gentiles, let alone received by them. It was an outrage to them. It, it, they felt it dishonored their cultural heritage, their God-given privilege. They had forgotten that way back at the beginning, God had promised Abraham that even before the Israelites came into being, that in his offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. They had forgotten Isaiah's words in Isaiah 11 that in the Messiah would the Gentiles trust. The Messiah would be of Jewish heritage, but all the peoples would be part of his kingdom. The gospel is therefore for all ethnicities, every people group. If it was not to be confined to the Jews, to whom the oracles of God were first given, how much less is it to be confined to America or the West, or for that matter, to any particular region or people group? It's a huge mistake to, to associate the, the gospel exclusively with one kind of culture. If it does not export, it's not the gospel. Our task is not to conform other cultures to our own, but to preach Jesus as the Savior King. And that, that's why Christians can move among any culture and people and thrive there. We see this even the, the believers in the Old Testament, Daniel and Joseph thriving in a pagan land and still staying true to the Lord, or Peter and Paul thriving wherever they go in the culture, still being true to the Lord. Gospel truths and practices are non-negotiable, but they're also universal. We must not overturn the authority of God's Word for the sake of changing human customs. And by the way, you know, if we do that, all we're doing is culturalizing the gospel and binding it into one particular type of culture. And, and it transcends that. We must be clear on what the Bible says matters and what doesn't. We, we, if we build a following for ideas and practices that aren't what the Bible advocates, we're building a house of sand, and we're cutting ourselves off from other cultures. 
The apostles had made their case from the Scriptures, but these unbelieving Jews just could not bring themselves to accept what God was saying. They had made an idol of their version of religion. It was really an idol of themselves, and that kind of religion continues to this day. Some of it is called Christianity. Their zeal and jealousy moved them to do wicked things. The Word of God and the Spirit of God produce just the opposite. By the way, that's why it's proclaim and display the gospel. The two have to match. They have to match. And if there's wickedness that's coming out, it's not produced by the gospel. They gathered wicked men of the rabble, evil, harmful people loitering in the marketplace, and set the city in an uproar. We see the same kind of violent rioting today. Don't miss the contrast. The apostles reasoned, dialogued, proved, and persuaded. Their enemies protested and rioted. They didn't have an argument, so they threw a tantrum. Beware of using such tactics. Protesting and expressing outrage are not good ways to advance the gospel. They are the tactics of those who hate truth. The gospel calls people to think, to reason, to compare, to find answers. And we need to remember that when we engage on social media or we encounter anybody who doesn't believe as we believe. Don't use the enemy's tactics. Don't get sucked into the furor of the times, the outrage of the times. It's disgusting. It's off-putting. It doesn't win people to the gospel. The enemies of the gospel not only created widespread disturbance using these wicked marketplace loafers, they also used lies. They took the truth and they twisted it. Is Jesus a king? Yes, king of kings. He's the anointed one with universal authority, but he's not the kind of king that they were alleging him to be. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate in John 18? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. We need to remember what Jesus declared about the kingdom that we're part of and the tactics that we use. If we want to have that gospel testimony resonate as authentic, people attack evangelicals and the gospel they preach in similar ways. They twist the doctrine. They define calling for repentance from sin, especially the celebrated sins of the times, as hatred that produces hate crimes. We need to prove them wrong. They define preaching Christ as the only Savior and King as exclusive, divisive, and disrespectful to other views. We need to prove them wrong. They view Christians in terms of political advantage or disadvantage. We need to let them know we're part of a kingdom that is far greater than any of that really sandbox wars. 
What they need are Christians courageous enough to endure the abuse and to engage them in conversation with reasoned argument. What they need are believers who don't get sidetracked but keep their focus on Jesus. He is the Christ, the Savior King of the world. If they actually see him and then trust him, they will gladly bow the knee to him. We want to follow the apostolic pattern, proven strategy with with success, but with backlash. We live in volatile times, full of propaganda and mob psychology. Let your life be one that, that cuts through the fog of warring factions with the clarity and the compassion of gospel thinking and living. It's a dangerous faith. It is a threat to pagan ideology. And it's also a call to endure mistreatment for Jesus. But you can thrive in this hostile world. Your faith under fire will be purified and come forth as gold. May God help us to live this kind of life for the glory of Jesus, the great Savior King. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that as believers and as a congregation, our lives would be characterized by the methods the apostles used and by the truth that they proclaimed. Lord, help us not adopt the tactics of the enemies and, and help us not to fear so much that, that, that we hide the faith or we seek to modify it in some way from what it actually is. Lord, may we be bold with your word. May we be clear with our lives. And we pray that in the providence and kindness of God, you would exalt Jesus in our day, that you would bring many to trust in him. Lord, it may be a handful here and there, or it may, might be a great many, and Lord, often from quarters we don't expect, but God, may we be a conduit of your gospel to the world. May we, may, may we not let the, the fire around us, the danger around us, keep us from proclaiming the truth. In Jesus' name, for it's in his name.